0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is sponsored by Bivens Point. You may not think about senior health care at all, and I fully expect that most of my listeners will fall into that category not thinking about it, but eventually you'll get to a point where it's time to help either your parents or your grandparents make those kinds of decisions. When that time comes, turn to Bivens, a long-trusted name for senior health care in Amarillo. Bivens Point delivers a personal treatment plan and a caring, dignified experience. I know this because both of my Amarillo grandparents spent time there. If you'd like to learn more about or to schedule a tour of their facilities, contact Kelly Bullard at 806-350-2206 or visit BivensPoint.org. That's point with an E at the end. Today's guest is Shilpa Shah. Shilpa is an attorney based in Amarillo whose practice focuses on family-based immigration. She literally has clients all over the world, and we talk about what she does and how she came into that career. Shilpa's own parents immigrated here from India. She's a second-generation American, and so we also discuss their experience the thriving Indian community in Amarillo and the Amarillo Hindu Temple that Shilpa and her friends and family helped launch several years ago. This is a fun one. Here's Shilpa Shah. Shilpa Shah, welcome to the hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason, for having me. Absolutely. I'm I'm excited that you're here and eager to talk to you. I like to start with every guest by just asking the most basic question, which is why are you here? And so tell me what brought you to Amarillo in the first place. How did you end up here?
1: So this is where I've grown up, um, moved to Amarillo when I was just shy of my second birthday. Okay. Um, That would have been July of 1973. So I didn't really have much of a choice in where I moved at that age, but... Um, I'm thankful that I've been here for as long as I have. So,
0: what brought your family here initially to Um, to move you as a child?
1: Yeah, so uh, my father is a a retired anesthesiologist, but he was finishing up his residency in Youngstown, Ohio, which is where I was born, and he was recruited um, to move to Amarillo by Robert Merriman many many years ago. Okay, so um, that's how we ended up here. And he was actually my father was actually the first Indian uh, American physician. In all of Amarillo. Really? Yes.
0: Okay. Was he first generation in the United States? So he was an
1: immigrant. Okay. um, Had just moved to the United States a few years before that to do his training. Um, He immigrated to uh, the United States in 1969, just a few weeks after he married my mom. Okay. And um, started his internship and residency. My mom immigrated about six months after he came here. And they were in uh, Cleveland for the first year of their you know, married life here and then Youngstown uh, for the next two years, which is where I was born. And
0: Amarillo, just because they were invited to come here and That's right. start a practice? Yes.
1: Or? So he came here and he went to work at St. Anthony's. Do you have a sense, I, I know kids don't always have this
0: conversation with their parents, but why they came to the United States, you know, to start that career?
1: Yeah. So I, I you know, I, I haven't really ever asked my dad why he... Um, you know, wanted to move to the United States, I guess, probably like most immigrants for for a better opportunity. Um, There was definitely uh, more opening up of our immigration system during that time period Mm -hmm. has been a shortage of physicians historically. And so he was, you know, one one of the many, many people that came over during that era. Um, He came over on a J1 visa. Okay, Um, And then at that time, there was um, a program to uh, allow for a waiver of the there's a home residency requirement, typically when someone comes over on a J-1 visa. But because of the shortage of physicians, he was uh, then given a green card permanent residency and then eventually became a U.S. citizen.
0: So you grew up here in Amarillo, um, you know, from the age of two, as as you got older, did you see yourself staying here or did you ever have the idea that you're going to fly the coop and, and go someplace else?
1: No, my, my parents were, I mean, they just kind of embraced Amarillo as their home and there was never really any looking around to move anywhere else. It was just, we were here and this was home. So I'm not really sure that they ever really considered any any other place. And my dad actually st- spent 40 years here mm-hmm. as a practicing anesthesiologist and he retired um, just six years, six, seven years ago in two thousand and thirteen, and has moved to Frisco. So he's in Dallas, okay. a suburb of Dallas. And they're retired and just enjoying life right now.
0: do you Do you have a sense? I'm always interested in when immigrant families come here and the Texas Panhandle being such a unique place in terms of the culture and the climate, and like it's a place that people live here on purpose, like you don't just accidentally get stuck here and, and stay around. Did, did your family find something that they really loved about this place? You know, your parents and decided, you know, this is, we're, this is where we're going to stay instead of like trying Amarillo for five or 10 years and then going someplace maybe more comfortable or with better weather or something like that.
1: Right. Um, you know, I think they, I, I think they probably were just appreciative of the opportunities that they had. And so I'm not sure that it ever really occurred to them to look elsewhere. Uh, my mom had um, a pretty traumatic childhood. She also has immigrated from a couple of continents. Actually, she was born in Zanzibar, okay, Africa, and she lived there until she was um, well, till the re- till the Zanzibar Revolution, which was in 1964. She was born in 1944, so she was about 20, and um, her father and mother had to put her and a couple of her siblings. Other female sisters on a ship um, to India. Very dangerous time for you to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of let your young daughters go, but they had to sort of escape um, the revolution. And so uh, my grandparents made the very difficult decision to sort of ship them off to India and um, just for their safety. And then eventually other family members followed, and my grandparents eventually followed. But I think having gone through that um, circumstance, mm-hmm. You know, it just sort of makes you when you're somewhere and you're safe, um, you have an appreciation just of being somewhere where you don't have to worry about safety or you don't have to worry about any of the things that we take for granted. So I I think from my mother's perspective, there probably really wasn't much that she was looking for outside of, you know, she's raising a family, she's married, um, you know, she's just doing her own thing, like most, you know, moms and dads do. So I, I don't know that it really ever occurred to them to try to to bail and (laughs) leave Amarillo. They were just here to stay? Because They were here to stay. They had a lot of friends. I I remember my mom having dinner parties when we were growing up, and it was like the UN. I mean, we had friends from all over the world. Um, I mean, from China, from the Philippines, from Latin America, from Iran – um, from Pakistan, from I mean, just all over, and my mom would have, and then just our local, you know, local Amaryians that had lived here for generations. So it was just like a melting pot of people that would come to the house. And my mom is a wonderful cook. She would make Indian food, and everyone just gravitated around her mm-hmm. her meals. And so, you know, I just I think that they just sort of assimilated it as much as they could, as much as, you know, immigrants, you know, they tried.
0: And it—I mean that was a different era, too. It was too, a very different You know, time. I can imagine to be someone who's, you know, that's in the middle of like the civil rights in the 60s and all the turmoil of the early 70s, that, that it must have been even more difficult then than it is now for immigrants.
1: It, it, yeah, I think it definitely. Um, and then having the, you know, the cultural differences, having the religious differences, mm-hmm. um, you know, they both grew up vegetarian. So that was kind of an issue in West Texas, different way of
0: life here. Yeah.
1: And in fact, you know, I think that was their intention for me as well. And my pediatrician pretty much thought I was going to die if I didn't eat, you know, meat products. So eventually, my parents kind of broke down and and would feed me like turkey Gerber, not probably very happily, but they did it for some time. And then I'm not sure what how old I was, but I was probably about seven or eight years old. And I, you know, I just kind of decided I didn't want to eat meat. And and, and really didn't do that afterwards. And so I've kind of been a vegetarian for the last, last 40-something years. So. Okay. Did you – where did you go to high school? You I was know, at Amarillo High.
0: Amarillo High? Yes. Do you, do you think that, I guess, the multicultural upbringing, you know, of your childhood and your parents' dinner parties and all that stuff, do you think that influenced your eventual career? I mean, can you look back and say, this has sort of sent me along this path?
1: You know, I, I think I just really landed In my career, um, just out of chance, but now looking back, there were definitely different aspects of my life where I did interact a lot with an immigrant population. um, Even prior to starting my practice, which I started in 2010, I was an adult literacy um, volunteer, and I did a lot of um, English as a second language one-on-one tutoring. Okay, and you know, and had the opportunity to be with a lot of people from a lot of different parts of the world um, who are learning English as a second language. So, I think now, kind of looking back. I had a lot of exposure to people from various parts of the world. I certainly didn't intend to become an immigration attorney. Mm-hmm. I, I actually um, went out with a with an attorney friend um, and a mentor, Adair Buckner, who kind of just said to me, "You know, there's a there's a shortage of immigration attorneys." This was back in 2010, and I kind of thought about it. I'd wanted to get back into the workforce. I had been at home for several years raising the children,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, was having kind of some you know just thinking about what could I possibly do. Um, And she said there was a shortage of immigration attorneys. And I sort of started exploring that. And that's what I did. I eventually hung up a shingle and Mm -hmm. um, went to a lot of conferences to educate myself. The wonderful thing about immigration attorneys and the whole immigration bar is that they're a very collaborative group of attorneys, um, because we're not pitted against each other in the court system. We're not adversarial. And so it's it was a wonderful way to learn. So even though I didn't have mentors in immigration in Amarillo, I had them all across the country. And by going to these conferences and making connections, I was able to call up attorneys and or email them and say, Hey, I've got this kind of a case. This is what I think, what do you think? And they would, you know, maybe point me in the right direction or tell me, okay, these are some of the pitfalls you should look for. Um, And so I, you know, very slowly grew my practice, I wasn't out there, um, because I needed to be working, fortunately, mm-hmm. I I was able to depend on my husband to support me. But I wanted to do something with my law degree, and I wanted to do something meaningful. And it, it I really just lucked out that she happened okay. to say, "This is an area you Here's should explore."
0: Um, so
1: you had your law degree already then.
0: I did. You just hadn't been practicing for several
1: years. I had not been practicing. So I um, so ironically, so I was born in Ohio, went to UT for a year in Austin, went to SMU for two years, graduated early. Um, in 1992 from college, got married just a couple of weeks later. And then my husband and I moved to Ohio of all places. So I've only lived in Texas and and Ohio. All right. My husband um, is a currently he's a neuroradiologist, but he had uh, matched in radiology in Cleveland. And so we ended up back in Cleveland. Right. And so he did his residency there. I went to law school there. And when I graduated, I I had a wonderful job at a firm called Baker and Hostetler, and um, practiced all sorts of things that young associates do, mostly just writing memos and doing a lot of research. Right. Um, Nothing super exciting. um, But eventually, we decided we wanted to be back in Texas, which is where all of our family um, pretty much lives. Okay. And so, when it came time for him to look for a job, he had an opportunity here in Amarillo. Um, And we decided, and my parents lived here, so we thought, okay, this might be a great place for us to move. So we moved back to Texas and to Amarillo Mm -hmm. in 1997.
0: And did you do that knowing, you know, feeling good about that, having grown up here, and you thought, this is where we're going to raise our family, find our careers, all that kind of stuff? Well, for
1: me, it was great, because I was going to be close to my parents. And so it it was like coming home. Um, You know, as a teenager, I would say probably during my time at Emerald High, or maybe even a little bit earlier, I was always itching to get into a bigger city, like mm-hmm. we would go to I have relatives in Dallas, and we would go there. And you know, that the big lights, the, you know, you just kind of get that excitement and that feeling. So it, I've always gravitated to the larger cities. Um, you know, and I had an opportunity to live in Cleveland, which is, which is a pretty large city as well, and live in Dallas. But I think long term, I like the the slower pace of life. I mm-hmm. like the fact that we don't have a lot of traffic. Um, it was a great place to raise kids. So I was I was excited to move back and you know just sort of build a life together. Yeah, buy a house and just and play house, you know, eventually. So it was it was good. So i I'd, I'd like to talk
0: a little bit more about what you do as an immigration attorney because that's one of those like you like you said, there wasn't that many people doing it locally. And when people think of attorneys, they think of courtrooms or they think of, you know, the types that will do divorces or you know the the stuff that's more a part of the everyday lives of local people who don't need an immigration attorney in most cases. So right. tell me who your clients are and what is the need that you're fulfilling for them
1: so i I have clients from all over the world, um and you wouldn't think in of all places, Amarillo, Texas that, you would have um, such a broad and far-reaching, uh, you know, have a group of people that you're that you're interacting with. But, um, and I think part of it is that we have a huge uh, population that have come from different parts of the world mm-hmm. as refugees. Um, that's one one aspect of it. Um, of course, we have a very large Hispanic population as well, and and then we just have people who have met people um, through the internet and through okay. various travels, and so. You know even people that have grown up in Amarillo have now connected with someone in you know Latin America or in Europe or in Asia and are wanting to bring them over as a spouse and so that right currently that's a big part of my practice okay. I, I help a lot of people who are either engaged to be married to someone that lives abroad or are already married and are wanting to you know um, get a green card or then eventually apply for citizenship so I would say, 75 80% of my practice right now is to help married couples primarily okay. um, immigrate one of the spouses.
0: And it's a complicated process. Like it's it's something that you need an attorney to sort of navigate you through. Is that right?
1: It you know, it really is. Um a lot of people who would like to save money or may not have, you know, a lot of resources will try to do it on their own and and sometimes it can get them into a whole lot of trouble and to unwind those messes aren't always it's not always possible to do that. Um, so yes, it's my recommendation, not just as an immigration <laughs> attorney, but you know I, my my brother, who is also an attorney, not he practices real estate. He always gives me this analogy. He's like, don't feel bad, you know, recommending your services because he's like, you know, if you had a cavity in your tooth, you wouldn't pull your own tooth. right. And so, you know, I think it's it's wise to at least have a consultation or or to to know that you are on the right page. But I understand a lot of people can't always afford an attorney. Um, we do have wonderful you know, Catholic family services. They have some lower-cost provider services that they're able to do for the immigrant population. Okay. But, yeah, I think it's a good idea.
0: Is, is most of the work you do in those happy circumstances where you're trying to get someone you love here, or do you ever get involved with some of the – more negative circumstance where it's a deportation or, or something like that,
1: right? So you know, immigration law is very broad in in the different areas of practice. Um, you have employment based immigration, you have family based immigration, you have removal defense work, which is you know the deportation. You have asylum cases. I mean, there's just a, there's a whole host of areas with just within the body of immigration. So I have intentionally chosen to do more of the happy work. Okay. Um, I don't do any removal defense work. Um, that's also a little bit part of the fact that we don't have um, those court systems in Amarillo right, right it It tends to be a little bit more cost effective for people to have attorneys who can travel to Dallas or have you know offices, branches in Dallas or Albuquerque or Oklahoma City um and I'm a sole practitioner, so i I don't provide that service
0: but you do you end up having to work pretty closely with you know government officials in places like Dallas or Austin or Washington, D.C.? I mean, how how much do you have to reach outside this area to get to some of those levels, you know, up the the chain? Right.
1: So a lot of my work, you know, is with USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. Um, We have local field offices. Um, Just last year, our jurisdiction for the panhandle changed. So we no longer go to the Dallas field office, we now go to the Oklahoma City field office, which has been really great for us. I think um, processing times have been much, um, much better than Dallas. And um, of course, the proximity of of Oklahoma City is, you know, it's still a good 120 miles closer than it is to go to, to Dallas. So that's been very beneficial for my clients. Aside from just dealing with um, that local field office, we also deal with with the service centers and some of the, the national offices when, when we're processing at some of the earlier stages. And then there's a whole other set of um, agencies that we deal with. or depart- It's Department of State. It's the National Visa Center. So that's a different government agency than the Department of Homeland Security, which oversees USCIS. So a lot of my practice then is in front of the different embassies and consulates throughout the okay. world. And that has been a very interesting aspect of my my job, especially over the last few years. Um, I've had clients that are uh, nationals of certain countries where we've um, we're no longer allowing nationals from those countries to right. emigrate. Um, I've had clients that have been appearing before embassies where we where they've had to close the embassies because of all the protests. I had one that was um, occurring right during the time when um, Tahrir Square was happening okay. in Egypt. And so that was very tricky to try to get her to be able to go to her, um, you know, her appointment. And so it it can be pretty challenging dealing with um, embassies and consulates around the world. Some are a little bit easier to deal with than others. But I mean, it's certainly a more challenging aspect of, of the job.
0: I was going to say, I wanted to ask like what the timeline typically looks like, but I imagine that's different. For every person and where you're coming from and what the situation is.
1: So the timeline depends a little bit about um, your status here in the United States. So, for instance, if you're a United States citizen and you're trying to sponsor a wife, then you're considered an immediate relative. So there's a whole kind of process that we go through for those people. If you are a lawful permanent resident and you're sponsoring um, a spouse, then you go through something different, which is called um, preference categories. There's a priority chart, basically, that tells you the times that you have to wait to get a visa. Okay, And so that, depending on what country you're from, um, that wait can be very different. So we have countries that are more, um, that we have more people from those countries wanting to immigrate, and those countries are Mexico, the Philippines, China, India, and then we have all others. And so depending on where your person is that you're trying to bring over, you know, mm-hmm. from whatever part of the world... Um, if they fall within one of those countries that's oversubscribed, they may have a long period of time that they have to wait. And so that's when you hear, you know, sometimes you have U.S. citizens who are trying to sponsor siblings from Mexico or the Philippines, and the wait might be 20 years before a visa becomes available. So that process could take forever. And I actually have had clients that, some from Philippines, some from India, where, you know, it's been like 15 years and finally we're like, okay, the visa's now current. So, you know, and at that point, that sibling may not want to come over here. Right. You know, it's been 15, 20 years since their, their brother or sister sponsored them. I actually have had a handful of people come over as green card holders after waiting all this time and we go through everything. We get them a green card, and they live here for several months, and they just don't like it. Hmm. And they give up their green card, and they move back home. Wow. So <laughs> so I want to switch
0: gears a little bit okay. and and ask you, because I know your family, having lived here for so long, is really connected to the Indian community here, which is a, a very vibrant and close-knit community. And and wanted to ask a little bit about – the history, you know, of, of people who have immigrated from India, you know, n- not all the same family, not all from the same place, you know, some came by way of, you know, Youngstown, Ohio, like, like your parents did. But tell me about the the community of, of people who have that heritage and, and live here in Amarillo.
1: So it, it is pretty vast. Um, a lot of people, like you said, from all parts of India, actually, who have come from different parts of the world, um, you know, some from Africa, some from Canada, some straight from India, um, one thing they all had in common, though, is I think that that need to just reconnect with their roots. And India is a very vast country with many, many different mm. languages. And um, so early on in our community, you know, it didn't really matter if you spoke a different language or if you if you were a different religion, because as we know, India is home to many different religions. Um, and so we uh, eventually there there were a group of you know early. Early Indians, probably in the in the 80s, I would say, that got together and said, you know, we really need a community center. And so they banded together, raised enough money, and they were able to buy a um, I believe it was a former church on Taylor Street and converted it converted that to the um, Indian Association of Amarillo. Mm -hmm. I believe that was in the early to mid-80s. My parents were also instrumental in helping that kind of come to fruition, buying the property and eventually getting that off the ground. That became sort of the cultural hub. Um, okay. So, you know, different cultural or religious events were celebrated there. People could also rent out the facility to hold like engagement parties or weddings, things like that. So, you know, that's been around since, like I said, since the 80s. So, a really, really long time. And how many people it serves, I, I really wouldn't be able to tell you, but I would say hundreds of families. Mm-hmm. And it d- doesn't matter if you are, you know, uh, Muslim faith, Hindu faith, Jain faith, Buddhist. If you have this Indian origin and you want to be a member, that that was fine. Everyone is was welcome and is still welcome. Later on, um, when I came back to Amarillo in the late '90s, and then had children and was with my group of friends and Indian friends, we all had these little toddlers and little babies and. And we thought, you know, it would be really nice to have somewhere for them to go more for religious training mm-hmm. or just just to be part of a religious community. Because that is one thing that I felt growing up here that I really missed. Um, I didn't have anywhere to go on Sunday mornings when everyone else was at church. Right. So that was always something that I think I felt either embarrassed about or just didn't, um, you know, you just don't quite fit in when everyone else is somewhere and you're not. Um,
0: Especially in a place like Amarillo,
1: where right. the first question you get asked
0: when you meet somebody new is "Where do you work?" and "Where do you go to church?" You right, know?
1: right. So I think that was uh, for my for my purposes. That was impetus for me to get involved with uh, with my friends and to really spearhead um, building the Hindu Temple of Amarillo, which after several years we were able to do, and it, it's been running now for since two thousand and seven, I believe. So it's been thirteen yeah. thirteen years. Yeah. Um, does that sound? Yeah, it, I don't know. Time flies. Um, so we have a full time priest there that takes care of the temple property and grounds. And but it was a long process. But with the help of so many people in the community, um, we had volunteers volunteering their building services. Um, I volunteered my legal services, people donated a lot of money and their time, and we were able to to come together. And, and that is a very unique thing for communities of our size. Um, Lubbock and Midland and some of those other places had been trying to do that within their local Indian communities for a long time. And um, we were sort of the first ones to do it. And I think, I I think they have um, also kind of followed our lead, but but we were the first and people really, I think they really appreciated the fact that we were able to do that. And part of it was there, you know, there was a group of about five families, and we were all friends first, and we sort of came together and we were doing. Activities in our homes every, you know, every month where we would get together and we would sing um, religious hymns, we call them budgeons. Um And we would talk about, real, you know, try to teach the children and just some basic things. And then we sort of realized that we needed to have something more than just, you know, our homes to do this. Right. And so that was the impetus behind Trying to get this up and running, but it, it took several years before we before we were able to break gr- ground and to get something consistent.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask. You know, with other religious systems, there's there's always like this communal sort of instinct um, that you know churches want to gather together for whether it's a um, you know sermons or to sing and, and things like that. Does does the Hindu faith have the same communal type of element to it? You know, for someone who doesn't know much about the religion.
1: Very much. So I would say um, in Hinduism, it's not only is it that communal, you know, coming together at a temple, but it's it's definitely a way of life. It, being a Hindu is every day. It's how you live your life. It's how you practice your faith. So, you know, everyone always says, you know, you don't have to really go anywhere to be a Hindu. Mm. You don't really have to go anywhere to pray. God is within you. Um, wherever you are, you can be spiritual, be religious, you can practice your faith. And so it's not one of those things where you just kind of, you know, don't remember what you're supposed to do all week, and then kind of just go somewhere and be together. And and so it's great to have it, because I think it's important, especially for our children to be able to understand what, mm-hmm. what are the tenets of our religion. But it it certainly, you, you could be there any day of the week. And, and in fact, people are there different days of the week. So it doesn't have to be just on a particular day. There's activity at the temple every day.
0: I know when you have, um, let's say, an immigrant family, and they're here first generation, and you know, you're in a place like the United States that's got this melting pot quality, and you want to you know, be able to live and work and move within the larger culture, but also retain those traditions, whether it's family traditions or cultural traditions or religious traditions. And so when you've got kids like yours, you know, where now they're third generation and, you know, very assimilated into this culture, is it difficult? Do you have to be super intentional about passing on like like the faith, you know, of, of yours and your parents and that sort of thing? With all these competing influences, right,
1: right. So i I think having grown up here, it was more important to me that my kids fit in. Okay. So you know, they they did not grow up learning um, the language that my parents speak. I can speak. It's Gujarati. It's from the state of Gujarat. Um, I can, which s-
0: is where in India. Is. So
1: it would be considered north of Mumbai. Okay. It, you know, that's the state of Maharashtra. Gujarat is right above that. Okay. Um, and right north of that. So I didn't grow up really, my parents spoke to me in English, um, they didn't make a huge deal of, I mean, I think they would have loved for me to have been fluent in Gujarati. And, and they did try actually for me to learn how to read and write Gujarati. Unfortunately, I can speak it, it's not the greatest, I can understand it, but I can't read or I can't write. So when my husband and I, who's also Gujarati, um, he can he can speak it same as probably about the same as I can. Um, we didn't make a huge effort to try to get our children to speak the language. Right. My parents would try every now and then, but it wasn't very consistent. So the English part of it kind of overtook. We, you know, they don't have a second language. A lot of our friends did make the effort and a lot of our friends were immigrants themselves. So they really had language was really a part of their growing up, you know, because we'd already been once removed. Right. Language Every generation
0: loses a little bit of that. I we guess. did.
1: So we unfortunately, we lost the the, the language part of it. I, I kind of wish now in retrospect, if I had it to do over again, I would have tried harder for them to to learn a second language. Um, I think it would have made it easier than to learn subsequent languages. But our friends have done a wonderful job of having uh, English or Hindi, um, you know, and other languages from, you know, there's Telugu, there's different languages and and their children do speak those languages. So I think that that's a wonderful uh, quality that they were able to pass along. My husband and I really made more of a conscious effort to try to pass along our religious tenets. Um, not necessarily just, um, you know, going to the temple and those aspects, but um, we're all vegetarians and we have a strong belief system in not harming any animals. And so for us, that was... Which makes
0: us a really unique place to live, <laughs> you know, where the cattle culture is so prevalent here. Right, but.
1: right. Um, and so that was very important to us and And both of our children are lifelong vegetarians. Um, and so that that for us was success, um, especially like you said, in West texas. and so um, the, the popular culture aspect which India is very known for its Bollywood culture mm-hmm. and um, there's a lot of song and a lot of dance and um, I would have loved for the kids to have learned that as well we just had limited time when they were growing up right. and they wanted to play basketball and they wanted to do other things and so we made those choices for them to do things that you know made them part of team sports and 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 be able to assimilate more so that they wouldn't necessarily have to go through some of the same things mm-hmm. that we went through
0: and I should say that um, you know my my daughter grew up with, several girls who did do the dances and we would go to some of the the Diwali celebrations you know at the Indian Association and just was so much fun to see that much of a different culture right here in the center of downtown Amarillo Mm -hmm. you know that most people haven't experienced or haven't gotten to see right Um, and and the way that. You could see all the different generations, you know, passing along those those different things was right. was really impressive to me.
1: Right. Yeah. It's. I mean, we've been blessed to have people that have been giving of their time to teach those dances, and I mean, it's it's a big production year over year. There were several months of practice that went into those dances, and and our kids did participate when they were younger, but as they got older and the dances got more complicated, they sort of <laughs> went off um, on their own. So I'd like
0: to hear because you are you know, whether it's culturally and religiously, you know, you have a lot of differences from this surrounding culture because of the vegetarianism, because you're Hindu in a place that's predominantly evangelical or Christian. Does it feel like you're a close part of this area? Does this feel like home, or do you still feel like, well, there's, you know, we're still not quite the same as everybody else in Amarillo? I mean, has that been something to— balance with your kids or to talk about or? Yeah. So I
1: think, um, probably my husband and I will never feel that connection just because we are different and we still kind of feel like there are barriers. Even
0: though you grew up here. I mean, you've been here all of your life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Even though we grew up here, um, I think my kids don't have that, that feeling. I think for them, you know, they don't see color, they don't see religion. They're sort of just, you know, everyone's just friend, you know, friend. And so, you know, it's been a lot easier for them. And I don't know if it's just because we made that effort for them to just kind of get out and assimilate even more than our parents were able to, you know, let us do. Um, but yeah, I, I think for my husband and myself, we'll always have a little bit of that, mm-hmm. um, not feeling like it's quite home, even though it is in our heart. Right. And, and, you know, uh, we love the land, we love the people that I mean, there's not any issues like that. But, you know, you're still a little bit different than the vast majority of the people around you. And, for instance, the few times that I've been back to India, even though I you don't really have too much um, family left there anymore, most everyone's in the, the United States or England. Or, but you still, when you when you land there and you um, are with people that are the same color as you, the same religion, yeah, I mean, it, it feels a little bit more like home. And mm-hmm. I think that's natural for everyone. I think you you know where where your people are, where people right. that are most similar to you is always going to feel more like home. And, and actually, I still have the same feeling even when I go to Africa, even though I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I just have that connection to the land there. So I, I don't know. I mean, I guess there will always be a little bit of that tension. Even though I consider Emerald to be my home, I can't imagine really living anywhere else right, right. now in my life. But I, I imagine most people who, you know, are kind of in the minority would feel the same way.
0: And is that, you know, dealing with immigrants, um, as as you do with your career, is that a pretty common experience? That even if, like, outwardly Amarillo is very accepting, and I I think the people here are, um, that there's something about not fitting in in some highly visible ways that, that keep certain groups, you know, from, from really feeling comfortable, even after years and years. Is that
1: accurate? I I think it is accurate. I think there's always going to be a little bit of that. Um, And then, you know, like you said, generation over generation, it it probably fades, Mm -hmm. but for that, for that immigrant community, for the, you know, the people that have come over from a different country. Yeah. I I believe they will feel like that. And, and I don't know how you alleviate that. I mean, I think like you said, I mean, people in Amarillo are very welcoming and very open Um, you know, the, the, I was looking at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, they have a, a map of the United States where uh, you know they they document different race based or hate based crimes, mm-hmm. and I was really uh, pleasantly surprised to see that that there weren't any incidents in all of the Texas Panhandle. Really, yeah, and most of them occurred more in you know the Dallas area or East Texas, and so I I thought you know that that does kind of fit with what I know about Amarillo. Um I think that people are genuinely very kind and you know even if they don't understand necessarily where you came from or they may not understand your religion or they may try to to change you and and yeah. hand you a bible which I've had happen on a number of occasions I'm sure um but but I think genuinely speaking people are very kind and they're not going to act on any sort of biases that they might have
0: Hey, Amarillo is sponsored this week by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches. Jimmy John's has three locations in Amarillo, two along I-40 and one downtown near the ballpark. With baseball season starting in April, the downtown location will be open for all games, and these franchise locations are all owned and operated by an Amarillo resident. This show is about Amarillo and the community, and Charles at Jimmy John's is always willing to help out with events, donations, whatever. So hit him up and go eat some sandwiches. Also, a couple of pieces of podcast news. Number one, I've launched an email newsletter. We've released a couple of those now to accompany the show every week. It's got background stuff about the guest, about the interview process, about recording. Uh, it's got some news about Amarillo. I offer some opinions. There's a lot of different stuff in there. Uh, it's been fun working on it. I hope it's fun for those of you receiving it. If you'd like to get this weekly email, sign up for it at bit.ly slash newsletter. That's bit.ly slash hey newsletter and number two we a couple of weeks ago announced the second annual hey Amarillo beer festival it's june 20th at starlight ranch it's going to feature live music beer tasting from a bunch of local breweries uh, also from texas craft beer lines and a whole lot more it's going to be a great event we had a lot of people come last year we're hoping to do even bigger this year so get those tickets reserve your spot at bit.ly slash beerfest2020. That's bit.ly slash beerfest2020. Okay, I'm back with Shilpa Shaw. Shilpa, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Okay. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. As my guest, your job is to answer those in as much detail as you want to. Okay. Uh, and these are questions that I've asked most of my other guests. So I'm uh, interested to see your perspective on these. Okay. To start, what's your favorite local restaurant?
1: Um, So I don't eat out a whole lot, but when we do and we go to celebrate different occasions, um, I love a good pizza and 575 Pizzeria, the original on Civic Circle, is my favorite.
0: Why is that one your favorite as opposed to the newer one? I think
1: I like the smaller, more cozy environment. Okay. so Yeah.
0: And there can be some waiting at at that one. That's true. That's true. Okay. We
1: tend to eat early, so.
0: (laughs) All right. What's your favorite local coffee shop?
1: So I really um, enjoy having a nice cup of coffee at home um, by the window on a sofa or in in bed. Um, But when I do get out and have coffee, my favorite would be um, Palace on 34th and Coulter.
0: Okay. Why that one?
1: Um, So that's my daughter's actual favorite coffee shop. Uh, She tended to frequent it quite a bit in high school. So um, she was the one that introduced me to it. And it, it probably has the most fond memories for me.
0: Okay, good. What does this area have too much of?
1: Uh, this one I had to think about a little bit, but I actually don't like the litter. Um, okay. I I feel like when you drive down the street, you shouldn't be seeing a lot of plastic bags and mm. a lot of um people throwing out their fast food and um you know, it's funny when I first moved here and I, my husband mm. would comment on when we moved back, um, my husband would comment on it and I would kind of tell him, "Well, it's really windy, so maybe that's why you're seeing all this litter." And he's like, "Well, yes, but someone actually has someone to throw else's that out is litter is <laughs> blown in from so, yeah, that's that's a little bit disappointing to me because we have such a beautiful landscape. And so when you're driving down, you know, even like Gem Lake Road or somewhere that has like a beautiful, you know, fence, um, a barbed wire fence, to, you know, to keep out the cattle or whatever. And then you see all these plastic bags that are sort of blown up against the fence or or even decorated on the trees, which mm-hmm. is far, far worse, even. Um, yeah, that's a little bit disappointing. And I've, I've been behind a lot of people who just, you know, will roll down the window and toss out their fast food bags. So that I would love if we could appreciate our our town a little bit more and try to keep our litter in our trash cans. I was going to say,
0: on. do you think that's a, is that an Amarillo problem?
1: Is that a problem you've seen in other communities? Is it worse here than in some I, other places? I honestly think it is worse here. Okay. And, and I think people, you know, blame the, the wind and maybe that has something to do with it. But, you know, eventually... You know, you can't blame just the wind. You right. got to blame the people for not keeping their area clean. And I mean, I just, I, I can't even understand. Like, I can't wrap mm-hmm. my head around people rolling down a window and throwing their oh, their litter out. That just boggles my mind. So, um, yeah, I would love to see less litter, and I think we would all enjoy our. I mean, we've got a beautiful town. Let's keep it clean. Totally agree. What does this area not have enough of? That one should be easy. That's more, I would love to see some more vegetarian and vegan restaurants, which we don't really have. I mean, there's always, we're getting a lot better at having options when you go out to eat, but um, as far as a whole place where you could go and you'd know that everything was either vegetarian or vegan, I would love to see something like that. Um, There's a bunch of... Wonderful options, you know, when you just go to Santa Fe or Oklahoma City or Dallas, right. but we just don't have that. So I would I would love to see more of that.
0: Have you found like any places that you know this is a place I can trust? If if I ask for vegetarian, it's gonna actually be vegetarian. Uh, again,
1: I think everywhere you go, people are very accommodative. Okay. Um, there's always something you can find on the menu, and it's definitely a lot better than when I was growing up. But I think we could still we, you know, there's and there's a lot of people that are actually vegetarian and vegan out there here yeah. in Amarillo, more more than you would think. And um, it would be nice for all of us to have a place to go and um, have everything on the menu be something that we might want to to try. Okay.
0: What's the most underrated aspect of living in
1: Amarillo? I'd have to say probably just the commute. I think it's a great, okay. I mean, our quality of life is so much better because we don't have to sit in traffic and we don't have long commutes. And um, so, I mean, I think it's added, it probably adds years to all of our lives. Yeah. So I think that's a great aspect of living here. Okay.
0: And this is a question I ask a lot of guests, and I'm really interested to hear your perspective as a vegetarian. But when was the last time you visited the Big Texan?
1: So that's a funny one, because I've only been to the Big Texan twice in my entire life. Okay, Um, And one of them, I'm told by story. So my father, when he interviewed here, they took him to the Big Texan and um, took my mother, and I I was there with them. And apparently, I guess I was around two years old. And um, I guess while my parents were talking... Um, to the other docks, I wandered into the kitchen at the Big Texan. So that's the the funny story they always like to tell. Um, the second time I was at the Big Texan, I was actually just there in the gift shop to buy um, things that were Texan, you know, like and okay. some different sauces that you, you know, you would get more in, in the panhandle for friends that were very interested in, you know, what, what is Texan. So, okay.
0: And that's, uh, that's a good place to go if you if you want to get a, a taste of what people at least think being a Texan's about.
1: Right. And so.
0: Okay. What's your favorite street in Amarillo?
1: That's also a good question and a very easy one for me to answer. Um, that's Langtree. Um, that's okay. where I grew up. My parents built um, their first house that they ever built and the last house they ever built. It was on Langtree. And so. Um, at the corner of Oakhurst and Langtree, 4201. That's where I grew up. And um, that's where I had all my first experiences, learned how to ride a bike on that street, learned and skated up and down that street, Mm -hmm. friends down that street. So I have really good memories, childhood memories of just kind of hanging out and being part of that neighborhood. We, We all were out, you know, till, you know, late in the evening, till the sunset, and we would just hang out and Run around up and down all those streets, and and now it's a really established
0: neighborhood. But like when your parents built, it was brand new as yeah, a development. It was
1: brand new, and that's where my mom, you know, would host those dinner parties. And like okay. I said, we would have people from all over the neighborhood come, and just um, different different walks of life. And of course, I went to Puckett Elementary the very first year it opened. Wow. Okay. And my mom would. We had a bay window that overlooked Oakhurst, and she could see Puckett right from the you know from the house, and right. so she would. Not have to walk me to school. I mean, I would have to just cross over the street, and she would just watch me through the window, go in and out of school. And um, so those those were good years.
0: Okay. And how do you describe Amarillo to people who don't live here? I imagine you might be talking to people who are wanting to move here, you know, and you're in a position where you're a point of contact. So right, right. How do you um, talk about this city?
1: So I, I think the best way of phrasing it, and I think you hear this from everyone, is it's, it is really a great place to raise children. Um, both of our kids went through Amarillo Independent School District, as did I. Um, I have, we have six people in our family that have graduated as Amarillo High Sandys. Okay. Myself, my brother, two brother-in-laws, and both of my kids. So wow. we've got six Sandys in our family, which is, which is pretty unique for an immigrant kind of situation. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I really love the school district. Um, I think that we've got exceptionally caring teachers. Um, we've all had a great experience going through AISD. Um, so that's, that's one plug for if anyone is wanting to move here, I would just say that it's a great place to raise children, um, you know, keep an eye on them, you know, as much as you can, mm-hmm. they can't get off too far off field here, there aren't too many places to go, right. And, you know, just really tight knit, you know, I think it's just one of those places where people, for the most part, do feel very welcome mm-hmm. and fit in. And I just think it's a great place to raise a family. Okay, so.
0: Well, that concludes my eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So, what is one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience in this area?
1: Um, one of my favorite places to go is Wildcat Bluff Nature Center. Okay, it's we've gone there for years since they've first opened. My, I think I had a birthday party for my son there one year. Um, a great place to just take young children on hikes, you know, and 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 not have to maybe venture out to the canyon. Um, every time you want to do something right. that's in nature, uh, it's a great place to go. Just within five, 10 minutes, you're pretty much, you know, surrounded by just by the flora and fauna of, of the panhandle. You can't really hear too much in terms of cars or, you know, other uh, normal, you know, city noises. You really just do feel immersed in mm-hmm. a place that... You can get
0: down off the bluff and not see anything. But,
1: you know, the the surrounding natural
0: landscape there, I mean, you, you lose sight of the buildings of Amarillo or any of the other stuff.
1: It's just a great place to get unplugged for an hour. Leave the phone in the car and just—I've taken my kids there um, for years, and we we did a lot of hiking when they were younger. The other aspect of it is just the historical aspect, mm-hmm. and and being an immigration attorney and kind of talking about this, it sort of reminds you of the fact that you know we weren't the first people here, right? And um, long before the settlers were here, we had the Native American population, Comanches, and um, one of the things that I'm particularly proud of is. The um, Quanta Parker Trail. We have the arrow there, right. and my son did the the whole billboard. He was part of that inauguration okay. ceremony. Cool. And he wrote up the the Quanta Parker information that's posted right there outside the board. So, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a great place for for people to go to. A lot of people, you know, may not know about it. No. And um, you know, if you have a desire to get out in the wilderness and just take a nice walk and take a hike, it's it's a great place to go. Okay. Shilpa
0: Shah, thank you so much for being on the Hamarillo podcast. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And that concludes the show. First, I want to say thanks to Shilpa for the interview. You can learn more about her law practice at shalawusa.com and about the Hindu temple at amarellomandir.org. Thanks also, of course, to Jimmy Johns and Bivens Point for sponsoring the episode. And Angelina Marie is the source of all the editing sorcery on this podcast. Sign up for the email newsletter at bit.ly slash newsletter. Hey Amarillo is made possible every week thanks to the financial support of my executive producers. That includes Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Katie Linger, Jason Burr, Neil Nossiman, Ryan Pennington, Corey Burns, Chris Zelda, Jennifer Callahan, Patrick Burns, and Josh Wood. You can put your name on that list and support the show. You can become a sponsor, any of those things at patreon.com slash this has been episode 128. My name is Jason Boyette. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. I'll see you next week.